Episode 63. You love him and you hate him, Brad Marchand of the Boston Bruins wears number 63. November 22nd, 1963 was the unfortunate assassination of John F. Kennedy, and the first lung transplant was performed in 1963 by Dr. James Hardy. Beyond MD, episode 63, here we go! All right, guys, welcome back to Beyond MD. We have a really good interview today. So Dr. Kathan Kulkarni is with me today, and he is a repeat guest on the podcast just because he's up to so much. <laughs> so I'm going to do a quick intro, and then we are going to dive into it. So Dr. Kathan Kulkarni is a physician, researcher, entrepreneur, author, social activist, and humanitarian, receiving over 15 international awards. As a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and researcher, Dr. Kalkarni has published more than 300 original studies to impact patient care. He has presented his research globally and has received more than 50 research grants and awards. As a certified coach who provides coaching nationally and internationally, his coaching practice focuses on deep inner work to achieve excellence, authentic success, financial mastery, and fulfillment. Kathan has developed multiple courses to combat the more than 50% burnout rate in MDs. Kathan's best-selling and award-winning book, The Legendary Quest, marries ancient wisdom with modern science. And guys, I can vouch for this book. Absolutely phenomenal. Every time I present, I share it because I think it's worth reading for everyone. And his second book, Soar, A Soul's Quest, is an inspirational fable and has been recently published. And we're going to talk about that today. So Kathan has completed over 80 articles, podcasts, and interviews on well-being, burnout, and success, and has reached more than 500,000 people to date with his work and writing. Dr. Kulkarni has been closely working as a global coordinator for Mission Vijay and is dedicated to spread the message of child and community welfare, health and environmental awareness, literacy, de-addiction, and national integration globally. And his personal aim is to positively impact 10 million people over the next five years. Kathan is a passionate entrepreneur with a focus on affordable housing initiatives, particularly with an emphasis on fairness, sustainability, longevity, and contribution to the economy. He's an advocate of equity, diversity, inclusion, social justice, and change. So Kathan, I've been following you for years now, and I'm just so blown away by how much you are up to. That's why I wanted to have you back today. <laughs> We're going to talk about your book. It's great to see you again. Welcome back. Well, thank you so much, Yatin. It's always a pleasure and uh, really appreciate your support and the work we've been doing to together. You know, enjoy every minute of it. So really appreciate uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. No, I, I appreciate that too. <laughs> so, Kathan, why don't we just bust right into it? Like your new book, Soar. Just tell us about Soar. Tell us a little bit about it and what the main motivation was behind it. Yeah, you know, I truly, truly believe that all of us have soar within us in some capacity, right? I mean, in the legendary quest, we presented a methodology, you know, evidence-based approach about success and authentic fulfillment and how to sort of live a well-lived life. But then the question came from some critiques saying, well, you know, you're basically, you know, kind of inducting a person to an advanced level course. Not to say that people are not prepared, but you would probably agree that having read it and critiqued it that you need a degree of self-awareness. You need a degree of sort of already a level of awareness to sort of really apply those concepts. And they said, well, can you tell us a story? So I said, well, first I like a human reaction. I brushed it off and I said, well, that doesn't really make sense. But then the idea stuck. You know, I think the person was so right that, you know, how do we weave the ancient science and wisdom and the modern science and wisdom and, you know, marry all this into a 
something that would just stick, you know. So and then one day, you know, Soar was born in my head, you know, and uh, I've been a huge fan of the genre of the hero's journey. Uh-huh. So, you know, like I've been a huge fan of Jonathan Siegel. I'm sure you've read that, you know, The Alchemist and The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, where you really can yeah. weave so many concepts into a nice story and then you really anticipate what's going to happen next, you know. And really, I think every physician's journey is a hero's journey. Every professional's journey is a hero's journey. And in SOAR, we really wanted to bring that out and really, you know, demonstrate so many different things, right? I mean, SOAR, you know, I'm not going to go into too much of the story details. I would love. Yeah, don't, don't uh, spoil it. <laughs> don't, well, I, we want to see yeah, how yeah. people are going to read. You, yeah. You've read it, I know. And thank you so much for being one of our major beta readers. And, you know, SOAR is this hero that's, has this inner itch and visceral discontent and, you know, has almost sort of a latent burnout, uh, like at least half of our colleagues have. And then, you know, our stifled hero is almost forced to abandon what's known to him, you know, what's familiar and go into the uncharted territory, go into the unknown and take the steps and encounter all the different people he's going to encounter and then learn what he needs to learn. And then, it goes full circle and there's twists and turns and all these issues. And in that, we've tried to really kind of embed the ideas and concepts and the evidence from the legendary quest. So we're very excited. You know, we've been really thinking so far the feedback has been phenomenal. And it really, you know, we wanted to highlight diversity in it. So, you know, we have three authors from three continents with three different backgrounds, considered impossible that they can write a novel together, you know, but we did it, you know, it happened. Uh, you know, my daughter did all the paintings for all the 18 chapters. You know, I did the cover oh, painting. Oh, wow. We, we wow, just that's beautiful. Make it as diverse as possible. You know, we had about 20 beta reviewers. You know, we had a lot of people critique it. We had a third professional editor edit it. And then it, it just, we tried to go the full meal deal. And, you know, the world's number one Wall Street analyst found it fantastic. And he agreed to go on the back cover. So, so far it's been great. And, oh, and the whole idea amazing. around this, I think, is to have, really a meaningful impact on our community and really kind of generate the awareness and highly encourage people to take their own hero's journeys and, and you know, go on to do the best possible people they can be. I love it. Now, can I ask you the character, like the protagonist in the book, Soar, like, is that based on somebody you know closely? Or <laughs> is it more just an, just a more just an embodiment of, you know, the individual that we often see in our day-to-day lives who's just striving for more but just feeling stuck or was it actually based on somebody you know well i I think you know (laughs) and and that question came from at least half of the beta reviewers saying well who's this is it you like a lot of people thought it was just me and you know my answer was that (laughs) of course it's partly me and of course it's partly all the other authors but like i started with saying that you know i think there's a sore in all of us so you know there's no way there's going to be anybody that doesn't resonate with source story, you know, Mm -hmm. story, because, you know, how many of us have felt like an outlier, you know, most hands go up, you know, and how many of us have felt stuck, you know, a lot of hands go up, you know, how many of us have felt challenged and, you know, how many of us have had to make difficult decisions, any professional, highly trained individual, anybody that works with complex systems, the answers are probably going to be yes, right? I mean, like, I don't know anybody who never resonated with who moved my cheese. I mean, it's meant for everybody, right? So. And, you know, if you look at the eagle, you know, the eagle was another interesting piece, right? I mean, a lot of people ask, well, why would you take an eagle? Like, are you trying to say that it's top of the predatory birds and it's for the high achiever? I said, no, no, I think we're coming at it from the angle that eagles are magnificent birds, right? I mean, they have importance in mythology, they have importance Mm -hmm. in ancient wisdom, 
you know, eagles are probably actually among the very few birds that have like a lens, like a magnifying glass, like a magnifying lens in their eyes. They have visions that can actually magnify whatever they're seeing. And they, they have such tack sharp visions that almost nobody can do it. You know, they have astounding stamina. They can cover long distances. You know, their phys- the physics of flying is so phenomenal. I learned so much about eagles, you know, when we chose it. They can wow. almost not move their wings and go for kilometers. You know, they are so stoic. And there's so many books and actually uh, written on leadership using uh, eagles as an analogy, you know, so uh, which I didn't know about at all before I started sort of make you know creating the story uh, but then it, it happened yeah. you know i mean the story kind of first came to my head some one day as like a one page and then it became five pages and then 15 pages and then 200 pages <laughs> it's amazing it sounds like your choice of character and animal was very intentional there kate and i, I do want to ask you first of all actually before i go on I, I want to thank you for giving me the chance to be a reviewer for the book that was very meaningful to me to just at, have some input in that way. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. So thank you, Kathan. Well, you're so welcome, you know, and you know, I think it was very intentional too. I think you're very well read and you're, you're connected with so many people. You're very self-aware and we really wanted sort of representation from all sectors, right? So, you know, from the PhD side of things, from nursing side of things, you know, from mm-hmm. physicians, from entrepreneurs, from Wall Street people. So just to cover all spectrums and really beta test our book to see if it actually conveyed what we hoped it can be. And all that was useful. You know, we, we dropped a couple of chapters, we added a few new things, mm-hmm. you know, we changed some of the ideas and it really, we're very thankful for the feedback. Couldn't thank you enough. Of course, of course. Now, The Legendary Quest is a book based more on theory, whereas yeah. Soar puts those principles into practice through a story. Which one was harder to write? I'm <laughs> curious, because it's, it's a different style of writing. And start to finish, how long did it take you guys to write Soar? Uh, so the writing, yeah. So to answer the first question first, you know, I think the legendary quest was harder to write in the sense that we had to do a lot of research in it. It wasn't a free, Mm -hmm. completely free spirited book, right? You couldn't say something that's, you cannot validate and vouch for, you know, so we had to be really careful. I had to, we had to Mm -hmm. read hundreds of books and put it together. And like, I still have the, whatever, 60, hundred hours of zoom recordings that we you know, critique the methodology for for the legend request. Soar, on the other hand, you know, I think it it's almost like, not, but I just want to make it sort of simpler that, you know, legend request was right and left brain, but Soar was more the left brain. You got this free canvas, you know, and you just got to go fly and create something and gives you yeah. this huge opportunity, you know. And the way, I mean, Chris is now an author, a writer by profession, and he, he kind of lives in London, you know, uh, in near London in England. And he also really added full flair to it, right? I mean, the way we worked it out, you know, and uh, we intentionally wanted to have a vivid sort of description it so so that we wanted the reader to fly on source wings and really experience it, right? It's it's not something to, like you could read it in a day or two, but the, the impact it would have would be better if somebody just took the time and, you know, just kind of reflected and stopped. And Warren Barry, you know, one of our other he was a massage therapist turned entrepreneur and now a business coach coaching widely in north america he said you know there was points where he just had to stop you know and just kind of let himself reflect and deeply resonate and think about things and there's going to be some exciting you know workbooks and different things come out of it so you know we'd be quite excited you know how how that's going to fly kathan i'm sure there's a lot that you learned from writing and publishing two books what are some of the key lessons and takeaways for you 
You know, I, I think the first thing is to get started. You know, if you're interested in presenting your ideas and, you know, really contributing positively to the globe, you know, you don't have to necessarily write a book. You know, I think you could start with articles like Mark Sott's articles are great. I mean, and what you're doing is probably same as a book. You know, the podcast, they're very well thought out and really bring out oh, the best thank you. from different thank people. You. No, yep. truly, you know, I mean, uh, just not for the sake of saying it. I think it's you can add value in so many different ways, but if you're going to embark on on a book, then I would really say that you have to be passionate about it, right? I mean, you have to really think through it and really run the idea by the people that are near and dear you and your friends and circle and see how much it sticks, you know, do a lot of homework, do sort of a lot of beta testing and really do a lot of research. You know, you have to have that research open mindset that, you know, you start somewhere, but maybe you're going to land in a very different direction, you know after a while and uh if you're gonna you know the hardest thing to learn was actually you know like legend request was okay you know like if you're writing a more abstract more theory more scientific book you know as physicians or trained professionals we can stand on our own two feet and say that we are going to back the books by with, with our own credibility but when we wrote a when we embarked on the fiction part of things like with our second book you know little did i know that fictions cannot really be self-published right i mean fictions need to mm -hmm. be actually properly published in traditional way and i'm glad that i didn't look at the literature on you know getting a publisher before we finish the book because the data is if you think publishing in medical academia is hard good luck writing a book right i mean wow, i think it's wow. like far less than one percent of the novels ever get published you know it's it's off really yeah oh it's my goodness like, i know, did not know that okay yeah and then chris one day said well now we need to start approaching publisher i said oh yeah you know we'll do this and that uh then i said yeah maybe we'll reach out a few he said no 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 no. you know you're probably going to look at more reaching out to more than thousand people i said are you kidding me like i'm not going to do that but yeah it ended up actually being i think about 300 or so approaches you know and uh, it's just the process you know like it's so difficult and not because people are not good writers i think the process has just become so difficult because it's based on metrics and you know for publishers, it's books are not, you know, like Apple computer, right? They're not a thousand dollar item. They're small, you know, relatively small value in the market. So if you look at it from their standpoint, they want to make sure that their numbers are met. Like they can't be read on everything, right? So, you know, they have literary agents, you know, you wouldn't believe like a, a lot of the literary agents in Canada, their turnaround time is about six to eight months. And then if you get picked up, then they'll kind of connect with the publisher. So you could be two or three years into a book still unpublished right so wow i think you know the long and short of it is that you know by all means we should all try to go with a publisher but you know oftentimes there could mm -hmm. be books where you could especially if it's like an abstract book you could go self-publish it and you know really stand on your own credibility but i and you know the word of caution is to really which i learned from a lot of people was to stay away from like predatory journals you know from what they call i think mm -hmm. they call it vanity publishers there's a lot of publishers who would charge you a lot of money and sort of get your book out. You know, I, I don't think they do really well. They they don't invest the time and the the effort because it you're paying for it. Their costs are covered. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't really matter to them, you know, what happened to the book, right? So, okay. Now, last question for me on book writing. I'll, I'll be honest, Kathan. One day, I also wish to write a book. I, I just see I writing sure. a book. Well, I, I would love to. You know what? I, I just feel like I have a lot of learning to do still to get there. And I think a lot of the things that I'm doing right now, it's honestly, it's a good test to see, well, what do people find important? What really resonates with people? 
And then you put things out there and then you figure out, well, I think this is the most high yield material that I maybe need to include in a book, which I would see as, you know, my chance to just, you know, physically like, you know, have an impact on the world there. That's a sign that, you know, you've come a long way, you've done this learning and people want to hear your voice. But, you know, I I just want to know any tips for writing a book? Like, did you actually sit down and write it chapter one to whatever chapter or whenever you had thoughts, would you just kind of scribble down notes on a chapter in random order? I imagine you have to use your time pretty efficiently when you pursue this process. Just curious. Yeah. And I can tell you exactly, if we have the time, I can tell you exactly how we did soar. So I think it was uh, one of the winter days when the story just happened in my head. And, you know, I wrote the one page of saying, well, roughly speaking, you know, the, the six parts of the story look like this to me. Yeah. And then I wrote it down and then I sat on it a little bit. And then then I broke it down and then Francis and I sat down, I sent it to him, we went back and forth. Then he kind of asked me to do a lot of homework and build up the story. So then, you know, I took it like, you know, at the time, not chapter by chapter, but portion by portion. So, you know, each of the six portions, I built it up into like two or three pages of detailed, more details. Mm-hmm. And then I started painting the characters. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I started painting sort of the, roughly the scenes. And then, once we broke it down, you know, we got to about 10 to 15 pages. Then actually, after a lot of discussion, we started writing. And then at that level, then we decided to basically go what we call passage by passage. So, you know, for the first portion of the book, the first, which later on became like first three chapters, we broke it down mm-hmm. to like, you know, each passage. So each chapter would have like, four, five, six passages. And then we kind of broke it down by passage by passage. So you have to sort of really come down to each passage level, right? Because you can't really suddenly think about the whole chapter. You know, you could write probably a whole chapter in a day or so, but it may not be the best quality, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, that worked for us. Like we went passage by passage. Okay, that that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Kathan. I want to pivot a little bit now and we'll blend all the things that you do. We'll <laughs> bring it all together here. But so if I recall correctly from our first interview, you talked about some of the things that contributed to you becoming burnt out, and you were very candid with that. But now, Kathan, when I look at what you do, and I think you were practicing a lot of medicine, writing a lot of papers, and I think that eventually, as it does for many people, one thing led to another, and I believe you talked about all of this contributing to you feeling burnt out. But now when I look at you, Kathan, okay, you're a practicing physician, mm-hmm. you're a researcher, you're a coach, you've created courses, you're an author, you're a father. To me, it seems like you're doing more now <laughs> than you ever did before. So somebody may come back and say, like, do you ever feel burnt out now? How come you're not burnt out now? Can you talk about this? Like, just reconcile yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I, I'm, blown, I'm blown away by how much you do and how much you put out. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the one word answer to this is alignment. And let me explain, you know, so... Just like all of us, you know, I was very driven to be at the time, you know, when I started practice after 14 years of training to become a clinician researcher and, you know, went on and got my first promotion and this and that. And in the middle of all that seemingly worldly definition of success, I was like, well, this is not feeling right. You know, I'm burnt out. And I did little did I know that that's what burnout is called. But then, you know, that was an opportunity. I got lots of coaching and mentorship and eventually myself became a coach without repeating the story we talked about last time, it was truly an opportunity to pivot, you know, and really deeply understand what this was all about. And what I learned is that, you know, as Kevin MD, Kevin asked me to write in one of his articles that, you know, appearing successful is not enough. You know, if I was a clinician researcher, 
you know, you're an associate professor and you have a family and you know, you have a house, you know, okay, you're meeting the worldly criteria for success. But that's not enough if you are not yourself feeling successful, you know. So a lot of our success definition and criteria are based on external metrics of success with very little emphasis and understanding on internal feeling, internal metrics of success. And, you know, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, and maybe we used this last time that, you know, it's indisputable to say, well, the XYZ guy has a $5 million of net worth. But it's very hard to say, well, that guy is deeply satisfied. Well, what does that even mean to most mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. So we conveniently ignore in our capitalistic economy the feeling aspect of success. And then, you know, that gets us on a hamster wheel and the hedonic adaptations and all those mental traps, you know. So I think, you know, that shift in identity truly helped me connect again with my core values, you know, and really understand what it is that I want to do and now helps me align with what I want to do more and what's meaningful and purposeful for me. And and that's how things have morphed and evolved into doing all of these things. And don't get me wrong, I still have difficult days. You know, there's nothing to hide there. You are going to have challenging problems. You know, a deal didn't work out. You maybe lost money in the market. You know, you wrote a very bad article. Mm-hmm. You got three rejections on a paper. You know, a student didn't complete the project. The day was bad. You're facing whatever, you know, massive media style mass or somebody relapsed mm-hmm. on a Friday afternoon and you have to kind of deal with all that. There's always going to be stuff that goes on, but, you know, the more aligned we are, you know, the more we surround ourselves with our own tribe. I love that word tribe, you know, the more meaningful connections mm-hmm. and community we have, I think we can recover faster, right? I mean, we don't expect it to be a flat line. We're going to have the whole ECG spectrum of emotions, but it's about finding our positive zone and, you know, rebouncing quickly is it's what helps. Okay. So it sounds like you found a way to, I guess, seek alignment in how to live a life that's in tune with your core values. And on the last episode that we did, Mm Gaithan, you talked about what your core values were. But now I want to ask you, what processes do you have in place to make sure that you are continuing to live your life aligned with your core values? Like, Do you wake up early in the mornings and just kind of spend time with your thoughts? Do you meditate? Do you journal? Can you give us some strategies? Because I, I feel like when life gets busy, yeah. work, parenting, all our pursuits, it's so easy to get pulled away. But what process do you have in place to make sure that you remain aligned? Uh, that's really what I really want to know. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant question. You know, I, I, I'm a more a late night person than early riser. Some of my mentors huh. think that's just habit, but I tend to disagree with that. So, you know, I'm not the 5 a.m. rising person that's going to sit down. But but I agree with all of those strategies. You know, what I like to do is to have a mental vision board. And, you know, even if you're having a difficult day, just just mm-hmm. to take a few minutes, even if it's one minute or two minutes, you know, take a, take a minute to just reflect on what your mental vision board is, who you want to be, and, you know, what kind of person would be that achieves all of those things and really kind of practice that. You know, they call it, in the scientific language, the art of cultivation, right? So we cultivate ourselves to be that person that we really want to be. And then on the hard days, particularly, right? It might sometimes, many times it feels boring. It's like, well, your mind is going to try to shut it down saying, well, you're never going to get there. You're going to have all those negative thoughts, but you just have to not let them go and kind of believe your own process and believe your authenticity. And, you know, if you're passionate about it, if you've figured out your core values, if you're truly aligned with your uh, vision map or vision board, you know, you will spring back, right? And the more, and then, you know, talk to your core circle, you know, and and I do that too, you know, I, of course, like everybody else, I screw up and, you know, I did this wrong and I did that wrong or I had a conflict here. 
I get advice, you know, say, I did this, you know, what would you do? And, you know, is this correct or wrong? Or, you know, what do you recommend? And you know, if I'm stuck in a thought loop, uh, you know, I, I talk to close friends and say, well, I'm stuck with this for the last two days, you know, and then they kind of talk me out of it or self-coaching works quite a lot too, you know, if you spend a few quiet moments, you can actually train yourself to talk out of, you know, mm-hmm. repetitive thought loops and mm-hmm. negative thought loops. And if that doesn't work, then of course you fall back on your your coaches, mentors, friends, colleagues, spouse, you know, close friends, whoever that your trusted people are. Yeah. So Kathan, I mean, th- these negative thoughts can happen to any of us, yeah, no, no matter how far we are in the journey. But I'm wondering, because I know you are a coach to others, but have you ever relied on a coach to make sure that you are living your best life too? I'm just curious, have you benefited from that or used that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, one, yeah. one of the, I, I can give you one example, you know, in one of the mm-hmm. leadership certifications I did, I met, I was exposed to coaching. That was early days, I think almost must be five years ago. And that person has a business coaching background, but it really stuck, you know, we, we really then became friends and, you know, every now and then I would catch up with him and kind of get some help, you know, and Francis is a great coach, you know, like he's so stoic, uh-huh. you know, that he's like, yeah, you're just stuck in a loop. He'll tell you on your face, right? And and then it kind of work out from there, you know. And uh, even Chris, he doesn't even realize this, but he's, I mean, Chris is a, you know, chess, you know, they call him the 2,500 player. So they're basically at the level, he's at the level of a national grandmaster. Wow. You know, he's just so unassuming. It's like, he's telling me, uh, can you play chess with me? I said, absolutely not. You know, like <laughs> I don't want to be thrashed to that degree. No. So anyway, I mean, you know, I think it's about surrounding our people around us with, with those ideas. And I think you bring mm-hmm. up a great point, right? I think in Canada, particularly, you know, much better in the US so far, but Canada, we are quite a bit lacking in the coaching and, you know, formally having coaching programs and formally having longitudinal methods. And that's something we, we're going to have to talk about soon, I think, because, you know, we have the expertise, you know, we have the methods, we have the science, but we need the infrastructure and the mindset to accept coaching as, as mm-hmm. a standard part of life, you know, just as we accept that we require, you know, interventional radiology training or, you know, whatever fancy training that you need to do your <laughs> thing. It's the same thing, you know. I mean, if the top athletes in the world use coaching, what excludes us, right? I mean, I think it's a huge I know. I know. and very important thing. Totally. So you talked about uh, negative thoughts, and I think sometimes we all encounter this. So I'll give you an example. When somebody is looking to pivot, maybe change their career or just you know, pursue something new, some negative thoughts. And I've experienced this yeah. too. Like I have sometimes a fear of failing yeah. or sometimes I tell myself, Hey, yeah, then I, I don't know if you have enough time for this right now. Or three, it's like, well, I want to make a change, but then I don't want to let go of the financial security that I have. So I'm afraid to make that change. Honestly, this has all happened yeah. inside my mind. I'm wondering like, which of these did you grapple with the most before embarking on your new journey and living your best life? I'm just curious. I think all of those, to be honest, every single one of those and and more, right? I mean, all of us have fear of failure. None of us want to lose the comfort zone that we have. It's difficult to learn new things. It's difficult to adapt to change. The financial security is a big piece, you know. It's just a lifestyle that we get used to, you know, the family time and all the parallel commitments, you know, all of those. But I think, you know, the beauty is in acknowledging all those negative thought loops and negative emotions. And then despite that, taking the action, you know, I mean, five or six years ago, I couldn't tell you one person who wrote a book as a physician, one person who maybe a couple of people who are entrepreneurs or, you know, whatever. Now I could name hundreds, you know, I mean, it's about really identifying with those people and recognizing how their journeys were. And they were all similar. I think 
they all began with a single step, you know, and they acted despite all those fears and hesitations and reservations and the unknowns. And, you know, the rest is history, right? I mean, they decided to take the longer road. And uh, it doesn't mean that we should never, ever recommend that, uh, you know, we support a massive exodus of physicians from our system. And we need to take care of our patients and do a great job at that. But at the same time, you know, the argument is that to do our jobs really well, I would argue that you need to be financially aware, you need to be healthy, you need to be well. And, you know, that's the way to guarantee a more healthy and workforce with true longevity. You know, otherwise, uh, we're going to be in big trouble, I think, you know, mirroring the American data on huge health crisis, right, unless we act it now. Mm-hmm. So, Kathan, as I've followed you, I've been blown away by all the work you're doing in so many different areas. Now, just to play devil's advocate more, just to make things interesting. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. So, so some people will say, well, you know what, if you really want to, you know, maximize that impact mm-hmm. and really excel, maybe people should consider focusing all their efforts in one or two areas. But then other people say, you know what, we're wired a little bit differently. Yeah. What makes us tick is that, you know, we have, we dip our toes in different areas. And that's just what keeps our going. That's what keeps our engine going. So there's a bit of a spectrum here. Yeah. Like talk about it because I have a lot of people who tell me, you know, stay focused, become more of a specialist in one or two areas. But then I see people like you who are really just thriving and excelling, doing so many things. How do we reconcile all this? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Two or three thoughts come immediately to mind. I I think I do like, I think Bill Gates said that in many interviews, you know, a razor sharp focus is not wrong. And, you know, seemingly maybe I'm doing a few things and or looks like maybe to people that I'm dabbling, but I'm not, you know, I think they're still 100% aligned with a razor sharp focus on a few things. You know, one of them is, for example, creativity, you know, they all come from a creative mm-hmm. aspiration, you know, the creative tick that I have and the other razor sharp focus that goes very closely. And I, I think you talked about this yesterday or a couple of days ago was, you know, the core value of excellence. So, you know, it, it comes from that drive to have excellent creativity. And on the, in the same breath, it's reasonable to say that those two would be not as purposeful unless they had meaning and impact. So it all goes in the same breath. You know, these are different channels to fulfill the same razor sharp focus. So, you know, that's one answer that comes to mind. And then the second one goes actually back to the legend request, you know, and that goes back to the data on success. We've been made to believe that a very high level of achievement in one area or one part of life appears or makes us feel extremely successful. But the data is completely contrary to that. You know, most people Mm -hmm. who felt highly successful and highly fulfilled over long periods of time, not a short period of time, you know, had a very rich fabric of, you know, lived experience, success, positive experience in all different spheres of life, you know, and you know, they, they were able to do what they call linking and switching. So take some one part of life to a certain level and then feel okay with that and move on to something else, right? You know, for example, play your golf to like, say, provincial level, but then take care of your family and then, you know, do your work and then, you know, do something else. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, we somehow maybe the media drives this or the internet drives this. It's not like you're quitting everything. I've done that. You know, I've, I'm a culprit to that, that, you know, you quit everything else and you have this laser sharp focus okay, I'm going to publish papers and that's it. And, you know, you're doing that 16 hours a day, you know, in the short term, maybe you're going to produce as many papers as Einstein did, but in the long term, you know, other people would probably tell you that this is going to end up in a disaster because you might burn your energies, right? I mean, this is where 
you know, I lost a lot of my hobbies along the long medical training. And, you know, there's so much data that, you know, it's not just, you know, spending time or something else. It's actually fueling your energies again so that you can create in the area of your focus, you know, taking that mental break, the walk in the park, whatever it is, walking your dog, whatever simple thing, building Lego. I've got a Lego piece sitting around here. So, you know, that's a good example. (laughs) That's awesome. I I like that answer. You know what? I like that answer because they say time is finite, but our energy can be replenished. And we all have different ways to do that. So that resonates with me. Now, what I was interested by, Kathan, I know you're a coach. And I think that your coaching efforts do focus on helping people overcome burnout. And I think one of the things you mentioned was that you focus on deep learning as a way to overcome burnout. Can you tell us, like, what does deep learning mean to you? And why is it important in overcoming burnout? Yeah, I I think deep learning, you know, if we break it down, Francis would give you a six-hour answer, but, uh, you know, without going into into the details, I think a simpler word is really what we call thought work. And, you know, even that's an incomplete terminology. It really comes down to doing thought and emotional work, you know, in the space of developing self-awareness, you know. So as we described in the legendary quest, you know, the model that we thought was the most impactful in the modern context without going deep into the spiritual realm and, you know, all the complex stuff. We thought that if we could bring self-awareness, you know, as in awareness of your own core values and your own pros and cons, and really, if you were able to focus on yourself and be aware of your thoughts and emotions, then you would find that space, you know, you would find a space in your conscious awareness that you are not your brain or your thoughts or emotions. And this is very well known in the modern coaching world that, you know, there's a distance between your cognitive awareness and the thoughts and emotions. And the more we work on that, the more we learn that any thought and emotion is basically a choice. And that's basically developing intentionally the thoughts and choices, the thoughts and emotions that you want to cultivate and develop in order to become the person we want to be. This sounds like convoluted language, but mm-hmm. but it really isn't. You know, I think it's very simple ancient wisdom. And the core of it is really cultivating self-awareness. And I could say that that's not spilling the beans. I think source tale is also a tale of self-awareness, you know, because ultimately, you know, we could try to name it whatever else, you know, to look fancy schmancy in modern world, but the wisdom has been known for thousands of years. You know, it's it's in mm-hmm. every ancient wisdom book in every part of the world that I've read. They might call it something different. It's in the indigenous culture. It's in, you know, the Toltec tradition. It's in the Chinese tradition. It's in the Japanese tradition. It's in the Indian tradition. You go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Any ancient wisdom Mm -hmm. revolves around self-awareness, you know, so there's no going away from it, you know. To have a higher level of existence, I think the fundamental part is to learn to become more and more self-aware, you know, Not, not to be consider ourselves superior to others. If anything, the more self-aware we become, we realize that we don't know anything, you know, and, and there's so much to learn. I love that. Uh, Kathan, with everything that you're doing, practicing medicine, still doing research, coaching, writing books, being a dad, can you talk about some of your time management hacks, things that have worked for you and have allowed you to achieve everything to date, but at the same time still live a somewhat balanced life? I'd love to hear this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always used to think about time management as what everybody calls uh, time management. And, you know, until I was exposed to this uh, mentor, you know, who said that, well, you're not really managing time. What you're doing with your time is to manage tasks. So in a given day, say you have clinical tasks, you have your, say, entrepreneurial tasks, you know, you have your writing work to be done, this and that. So 
you really have to figure out how to maximally leverage your time to fit in the tasks that you can do. So I think it comes down to, again, you know, having extreme clarity on what's important to you, really figuring out how to effectively do your tasks, you know, really not power through them, but have the focus and energy it needs in that particular area of work that that it takes to do it. Mm-hmm. And then continue to monitor your master plan, right? I mean, are you focusing too much on eating junk food or, you know, just not compromising family? It's going to happen some days. Like, you know, there's weeks when I'm not playing with my kids, you know, there's just no time. And then you just acknowledge that, but try to intentionally put in the effort next week that, you know, okay, you know, now I want to play a little bit, whatever, do the wrestling match or go do some skating or whatever else it is that works for your family. But again, you know, going back to the success model, you know, if you can build a rich fabric in different areas of work with effective time management and effective task management mm-hmm. we can train our brain you know it's about unlearning what's not useful and relearning what's really effective and useful mm-hmm. and one thing that really helps me is to have efficiency right i mean like i don't like to sit on emails you know i like to respond right away it does mean some extra mm-hmm. work and extra cognitive load but you can train your brain right i mean a lot of that data comes from the big entrepreneurs, you know, like Bill Gates or Elon Musk. I mean, they'll tell you, you know, you can use this so much published data on how they achieve, you know, how can they run 15 companies? In front of that, we are just doing minuscule amount of work. You know, how do they make all that, that many decisions? You know, so they, they really have this laser sharp focus and really make important decisions the priority and keep things simple in life, right? I mean, they make those big decisions and kind of really you have to cultivate the intuition. You have to cultivate the ability to make decisions. You have to sort of be decisive. You have to cultivate efficiency. You know, I think it's about training your brain to a higher level of performance. Like Jim Quick's book is really good on on the limitless brain. I'm kind of drawing on some of those concepts. You know, a lot of the limitations we impose on our brain are exactly those, the limitations we impose on our brain. You know, so we can unlearn that, right? I mean, we can really... He argues very beautifully, you know, uh, I follow him and, you know, we respond to sort of yeah. stuff uh, to each other. And I agree with his argument that, you know, we can train, we, we don't have to necessarily call it limitless, but we can train to maybe one to three steps higher. What's this book called? Oh, it's called Limitless. Oh, it is called Limitless. Okay. Just like the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think he came up with a new one now. I think it's called Energize. No, I think it's Limitless Expander or something like that. It's just coming out now, but... Interesting stuff. Yeah. Kathan, I do want to also pick your brain just on the financial side, because I think you're the type of person, I think you can have a conversation (laughs) with anyone about anything. I can tell you're very well read, you're very curious, and you continue to learn. You know, as I've learned about finance, you know, I've learned a lot over the years. And I think I'm kind of, I'm in that, you go through that awkwardness phase where you're learning about all these new things. And sometimes initially, you get excited. And you think, because of a bit of a recency bias, what you've learned may have a huge impact on your life. But then as I take a step back yeah. and look at everything I've learned about, I really do believe, Kathan, that I think a few basic financial practices will give us the majority of that impact as long as we kind of stick to our plan. But I'm just curious for you, like what has moved the needle in the right direction for you and your family the most when it comes to like how you think about money or your just overall approach to to finances? I just love your take. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there, there could be two answers for that, Maybe, but I'll answer the latter question first, I think. And you, you said that in the other day's talk. I think you really have to be very intentional about your money, you know. I think the biggest needle mover 
is to live like a resident for a first few years of your staff job, you know, because when you actually have that differential of higher income from staff job, mm-hmm. but you don't just have lifestyle creep into it, you, you create that mm-hmm. big cushion of nesting because, you know, I have a lot of non-medical friends now and it's truly, you know, I, I speak about this very openly now. And I think the very fact that our training years are extremely long, which is required, you know, in the current standard, mm-hmm. it does cause an income loss, you know, like a lot of, People in other professions are already working when they're 25, you know, and they're saving up monies and to really not just, you know, it's not a race, but, you know, to kind of even mm-hmm. match what they're doing, you need to really park up quite a bit of money in the first few years of staff job, you know, to really have that cushion and get started, you know, whether it's your first home or, you know, whether you're going to start a business or simply get into the stock market or start developing a investment portfolio. I think you need that capital. And, you know, the, the quicker you can do that, I think that's mm-hmm. going to move the needle the most. You know, like you said, I love what you said, right? You're intentionally not driving a BMW X7. Nothing stops you. It's funny, you know, they'll, they, they're the quickest to give you a car keys of any car you want without asking <laughs> any question because it's a depreciating commodity, yeah. right? It's so enticing, you know, like if your neighbor is driving a Ferrari, it's so difficult, you know, it, it is hard. I know. We like to compare ourselves to other people it's so easy to fall into that trap. Yeah. You know, I have my guilty pleasures. Like I'll tell yeah. you, like one of the things that the family and myself, well, what I like to spend on is, well, certain experiences. We love to go watch live sporting events because yeah. sports for my boys and I, it's a wonderful way to bond. Yeah. And, you know, I think we we go, we watch sports together. They still think I'm really cool. I love that feeling, right? No, I mean, they, I they don't even think that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal yeah. because, you know, you're investing in things that, that's an investment to me that, you know, investing in quality family time and for your family, that's live sports, you know, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a Canadian painting right at the back there, you know, and yeah, you know, yeah. to me, art is important, you know, so I introduce my family to art and we go to different, you know, art places. We have a number of art pieces, you know, that that's very meaningful for me for from a creativity aspect. And, you know, well, my daughter kind of agreed to do all the artwork for the book. Right. So, I mean, it, it kind of it, it shows the impact. So, you know, that moved the needle for us, you know, for sure that, you know, really try to not keep up with the Jonases. But in the same breath, I'm going to say that mm-hmm. to not keep up with the Jonases, you really have to have a lot of clarity on your financial goals, right? And that that has to be very clear. That Almost all of us are going to have, you know, finite financial resources, whatever, you know, the numbers may be, you know, so there needs to be a good analysis of what you want your goals to look like, you know, what you want your mm-hmm. lifestyle to look like. And, you know, in the legend request, we talked about the money mindset, but now, you know, we've kind of taken that a little bit further on what we call the money blueprint. So it, it's all about mm-hmm. understanding your money blueprint and then implementing it, right? I mean, if you are somebody, just going to make it simple, you know, if you are somebody that's going to be happy with a $100,000 lifestyle, for example, you know, which is, unfortunately, that's no longer too much money. But then that's who you are. And then, you know, why do you care if somebody lives a $10 million lifestyle or a $10,000 lifestyle? You know, you're going to be pretty fulfilled right. and happy right. with that. And then it's up to you to figure out how to supply that lifestyle. You know, that's the end of the story. And then the social comparison becomes quite meaningless because, you know, I've seen a lot of these kind of people, you know, and I learned it from them that they are living their desired lifestyle, you know, very balanced desired lifestyle. And they couldn't care less about who's making the millions and who's really not. Mm-hmm. They support the charities that they like and they don't really worry about the social comparison. You know, they, they're quite content with whatever they drive and wherever they live and however they live. You know, and that's it's such a phenomenal feeling, you know, and um, yet you have people falling into 
you know, the hedonic treadmill that, you know, you're acquiring possessions. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of them have depreciative value. You know, I mean, it's not even investment assets. I know. No, it's it's all very well said. Now, you started to talk about your family, which is where I want to pivot to next, Kate. And your daughter, Riva, uh, wrote a book as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, I forgot about that piece uh, in terms of the soar. So what happened is, you know, as soar was being written, you know, the idea came that she was sketching one day and then we said, well, you know, maybe we should get you to, I didn't tell her in the beginning. You know, I was directing, so well, can you draw this? Then can you draw that? And she didn't quite figure out what we're doing here. So, she, you know, she was taken aback when it all came together. And then in the summer, you know, I, we were kind of, I think it was uh, spring, you know, it was spring this year when we were proofreading so the final proofs were there. And then when I read it, you know, I said, well, you know, this is really like a older teenager, adult level of language, you know, and uh, the principles, you know, the kids shouldn't be excluded from that. And we're really not catering to younger kids. So I said, well, how do we do this? So then I was like sitting and thinking and thinking. And then, you know, she's a great reader and also writes good, like imaginative writer. So I said, well, maybe I'll start narrating sore to her. You know, so I started narrating it and I said, well, this is chapter one. Go write the chapter one in your language. And she actually did a pretty good job. I said, okay, maybe we've solved the problem. So then I narrated chapter two and then I said, okay, try this. And then that continued. And then, you know, the story is more complex for like more suitable for an for a older audience. <laughs> so Mm-hmm. After the first half, we kind of changed the story a little bit to make it more sensible to a younger kid. But it all worked out, you know. So I did some narration and, you know, let her kind of lose with her imagination. And it kind of came together, you know, a very simple kid's version of Soar, which I, I think should become part of the syllabus, you know, like they should be <laughs> teaching yeah. all those values right up front. Well, well, can I tell you what, Kathan? You sent it over to me again a couple of days ago. I, I read the book and I was really, really impressed. I do want my kids to read it as well. And so that's kind of my next task. But my next question actually relates to, you know, how do we, in terms of teaching our kids, like you do a lot. And I imagine, how many kids do you have, by the way? We've got three kids. Yeah. Three, three kids. And, and what are yeah. their age ranges? How old are they? They are now like uh, nine and a half and seven and a half and just over four. So busy, busy times. Oh, okay. Okay. So we are in the same age group. So yeah. my, my kids are Rohan and Zion. Rohan is nine. Zion is six and a half. And so, Kathan, I know the kids are still young, yeah. but I imagine they see you do your thing and yeah. they're maybe absorbing some of this by osmosis. It's amazing. Like Reva is your oldest, right? And she yeah, wrote the book. Yeah. So, so like to me, it's just phenomenal that you are actually able to connect where they're at that level and be like, you know what? I think you could also write a book. And she actually went ahead and did it. Like, how did you pull that off? Because I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> That's like a parenting mic drop moment right there. Like the fact that you're able to pull that off. Yeah. How did you do it? How do you connect with your kids about these things? Or is it more just they're watching you passively learning by osmosis? Can you tell me more about this? Because I'm blown away. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, you know, it's intriguing you say that, you know, like I, I true, I agree. You know, I was blown away too. I wasn't sure she would pull it off. But I think it's about, again, it's about leading by example, right? I mean, I, I'm just honest. I just tell them that, listen, you know, this is where I screwed up. I don't quite use that language, but I just say, this is, these are the mistakes I made and this is what's positive, you know? And I think, you know, when they kind of, they're screaming their guts or they're upset that the other sibling got an award or this, I use them as coaching moments. I said, you know, this is a great time to, we've used the language in her book, you know, in, in Shine, you know, that her book has a pre- female protagonist because, uh, you know, that's how I wanted it to be that, you know, we, 
uh, sore is not exclusive to you know a male protagonist it's for each and every pronoun so we just use the language there that how do we cultivate awareness you know that really keep emphasizing that your you know choices are of thoughts and emotions are optional and you can really kind of use day to day living as opportunities for coaching and you know i would love for all this material to get into you know school curriculums and early childhood education and particularly teenagers right you know the more mm-hmm. emotionally and thought self aware population we're going to have mm-hmm. we, we would probably have less issues with my guess is mental health and all of that you know which is becoming oh, yeah. a huge challenge you know because people would be able to kind of assess their own thought download you know so yeah it just i didn't force it that's one thing i didn't do i didn't force it i didn't say you have to write this it took a while you know i think we did about half the book and then it sat on the backbench mm-hmm. for a lot of the summer and then suddenly we took it over again you know and then it was interesting right i mean the interesting piece was that i said well we're not going to use the picture that you did for my book so she said well what do i do then so then they read it all the pictures and then the younger sister said what well, can, can i do something to and then so she did two or three yeah. of the pictures you know so oh that's so nice out. that was so cute you know i was like okay well i'm not sure so she tried the eagle that did quite work <laughs> so we had to kind of work through a bunch and then we picked two or three i think you know that kind of thing uh i love it i just love that you were able to connect with your kids on this level, sharing your passion with them. And it really resonated with them from what it sounds like. So, Kathan, I know you want to impact millions of people, and I know you will. But I just want to know, at the end of the day, what do you want to be known for? Like, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, like, what would you want people to say about you and the impact that you had? Well, I would love for them to say that, you know, I left the world and if they've interacted me, them in a better place than where they were, you know, so that it's meaningful and purposeful to them. Okay. You seem to be, as somebody who's very well read, you like to read. Any recent books that you highly recommend or any favorite books that you want to share with us here? Recent books, you know, let me think about that one. Because I have one for you that if you, maybe you've already read it. So you mentioned one book today. The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by yeah. Robin Sharma. Yeah, yeah. Have you read The 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. Oh, okay. That was one of my favorite books this year. I, I, I yeah, read yeah, it. Yeah, it's great, you know. That book is just phenomenal. So I was like, in case you haven't read it, I suspected you already had. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. No, no, it's a, he does some great work, you know, and he's he's Canadian, right? He's a Dalhousie graduate, so I have a special connection. <laughs> well, you know, the funny, you know, what a small world it is, so... Uh, when I was in undergrad trying to figure out my footing and getting to med school, I ended up doing research with his brother, who's an ophthalmologist at Queens. Oh, and then yeah. I learned about... So yeah, his brother is Sanjay Sharma. And he's also very active in many areas, really smart guy. And then I learned about Robin Sharma, read his first book. And then I came across the 5am club and it's quite something. So yeah, I mean, uh, the book that's... I'm still reading it. It's been kind of a slow, but the book that I would talk about is called The Ride of the Lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's by Bob Iger. You know, he was the, uh, yeah. the longest serving CEO of Disney. Yeah. And, you know, he... That's he a really, good book. Yeah, it's a great book, you know, I mean. And the first few pages, you know, like he... What's captivating is how he talks so openly about all the big challenges. We think it's all hunky-dory and nothing happens, right? And he talks openly about, well, if you're leading an organization with 150,000 people, things are expected to go wrong constantly, right? I mean, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can get our small team of 15 to always work efficiently, you know. So, yeah, anyway, you know, I, I think that's the phenomenal book. I haven't finished it yet, but I've been slowly reading. But there's been, I've been doing no, no, some, enjoy, enjoy. some more ancient wisdom reading. I found some 
uh-huh. more Asian ancient wisdom textbooks, but they are scholarly interpretations by some world-renowned physicists oh, wow. and all that. Uh-huh. So I've been, uh, that's where I've been spending more time this year. Like I, this year, uh, I've been trying to read the scholarly translations of major worldly religious texts to oh, come at wow. it from the idea of how do we understand yeah, this yeah, yeah. at a deeper level without the biases? You know, because if you ask somebody who follows mm-hmm you know, a particular religion or a religious belief, it often gets tainted with biases. So if you go to scholarly translations, I find you throw all that out and you just get the gist of the material. Oh, that's amazing. So, Kathan, going back to your book, where can people find your book, Soar? Yeah, so Soar, you know, very fortunately, you know, the, our publisher did a first print run and that's gone now. So now it's on Amazon, you know. So yeah. it's if you search uh, Soar, the Soul's Quest. Yeah, no, Amazon. we'll put a link to the book in the in the show notes for sure. Yeah, that's probably the easiest. And uh, yeah, if it resonates, if you love it, please leave a review, good or bad, we'll take it. Because I think ultimately we all want to create a body of evidence that's useful. So, you know, that's one thing we're going to not really hound people, but we really hope that people would leave their thoughts back to us because it helps us kind of think and rethink and make things better. So any positive or negative feedback is welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And and Kathan, you know what, just following you over the years, I'm just so amazed with what you were able to pull off. And I'm also grateful for the friendship that we formed. You know, you've been a supporter of me that I'm always, I've always been very grateful for that. And I want to do the same. And I think you're doing such good work and impacting so many people. And I really believe you're going to impact many, many more people to come. So listen, I'm just wishing you all the success with all your pursuits going forward and just keep up the amazing work. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I am certainly going to hound you with some of the collaborative work for our yeah, for sure. group in Canada, right? So we'll, we'll certainly talk about that in the upcoming times. You know, we've got a couple students working on some great projects. So we'll definitely keep you posted and other people posted on that. Absolutely, Kathan. I can't wait to hear about it, okay? It's been yeah. honestly just, I love talking to you. Uh, It's been an amazing (laughs) conversation and we will uh, see you soon, okay? For sure. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, everybody. So guys, one thing I did want to mention is that the book that Kathan's daughter Reva wrote, which is called Shining All the Way, was also accepted for publishing, which is such an amazing achievement. I certainly hope it reaches the hands of many kids. And if you're interested in reading Kathan's book, which is called Soar, the link to that is in the show notes. I'm sure many people would love to read it. Amazing work done by one of our physician colleagues. So I hope that people will give it some consideration. Guys, thank you again for taking time out of your day to be with us. I really appreciate you being here. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to share the word, spread the word with a few people in your network. And if you feel inclined, we would be grateful for any ratings and reviews. We'll see you in a few weeks. Stay well, stay savvy.